Tonight we are about to uh, get into a little deeper into the translation process, but of course we always have to know what are we translating from. That's always a big question. We got to make sure we're translating from a worthwhile document, which is why we went by the copying and uh, aspect of preservation of God's Word. Uh, And tonight I have wonderful news for you. You ready? We have found a very ancient document. We are absolutely confident that it was at worst second generation document. Third generation. Second or third generation document. And it has been very carefully preserved. And we are very excited to add that into our rendition of Fred is Dead. And so, what we have done is we have taken that very early document, and by the way, the other ones got lost. Um, I do have three that I kept. Um, They've been passed down, and these are all late ones. These are all like sixth generation. I'm not sure where the other ones went to. They've disappeared. We've just lost them. Um, I found some, some little pieces. Some of the pieces are still in here, which we know are pretty old, because they're in cursive, so they were like third or fourth generation documents, but we just have like little pieces of them, like that, and so we're not, we don't have a lot of it, um, but, we, but we do have these, and we have three of them that were preserved, um, and they're not, we have a lot of them, all right, we, that's three. And there they are, but they are late. They are um, pretty late documents from what I can tell on here. Um, and uh, has a few scribal errors, and so we recognize those pretty quickly. We know that there, the first word is not spelled T-H-E-R, but T-H-E-R-E, which we found precisely on our ancient document. Um, it is older than all the ones that we still have here because we've lost so many of the old ones that all we have are these um, and this scrap that uh, survived out of the uh, scripted ones. And so we have this. There are some spelling errors and lots of scratchings out and things. This one isn't quite complete. Um, they kind of ran out a little bit. Uh, and so these were some of the, this might have been like a sixth generation, but we found the early one. And so we have used the early one to reconstruct a long, we've given some credence to this, but the other one was so close to the original source that we had to use it um, more extensively. We relied on it as a primary and these ones as a secondary source. And so we have... Uh, with a few spelling changes, uh, corrections that uh, the primary source uh, really helped us with because um, uh, two of these are spelled there, T-H-E-R, and so there was some conflict about whether you spell there with an E at the end or not. Um, and so, because two out of three didn't include it that we have here, and this one didn't have that part of the text, and so we got this spelling error corrected, um, and our ancient one shows that that is the correct spelling. So we've melded them, and we've put together this for us, and, we are, and we, we've, we've also recognized some uh, distinction in, in the names there. And so 
Uh, we've also corrected a spelling here of occasional that uh, some of them have it misspelled, double S's and one C and things like that. Um, and so uh, we're real excited, though, about finding this ancient document. Um, and so this is what we've come up with. This is the story of Fred is Dead. Okay, now I have a question for you. Um, one of you knows exactly what is wrong with this because you created the document. Um, so outside of that one person, um, what do you see different about this than maybe what you see here? You do not have the parenthetical. Um, well, the parenthetical is not on this one. The parenthetical is not on this one. And the parenthetical is not on this one. Well, according to these, it's furred, but they have a lot of other misspellings in here, too. So we, we know that it's, his name was Fred. I thought, I thought he said he was a horse. Well, all of these do say that he was a horse, a stallion specifically, um, but that was not in the ancient one, and we think this is a scribal addition, that he was a horse. Okay. That's the parenthetical part that was crossed out, correct? Describing Paul. Um, and uh, there's some evidence. That is, a little bit of that is on here, by the way. We do see that there was something. We're not sure. Scratch right at the very top. Um, but um, this is what we've come up with, and this um, you should just accept because we've derived this really from a much older document than these documents. What are you saying? Do you you think there's a problem here? That's probably why the scribal inclusion was there because there was confusion. So they probably just included that he was. I don't know how they would have known he was a stallion instead of. A, because each one of these says that he was a majestic stallion. Um, Ferd was a majestic stallion. Ferd was a majestic stallion. Ferd was a majestic stallion. Um, yeah, and that's why we just, just took it out. Because it wasn't in the oldest one that we have. The oldest document we have, uh, because we've lost the original, we've lost most all of the earliest documents so we just have these later ones and we know that they they're in they were in use a lot and uh but that oldest one we went by primarily and it did not have that in it okay so you have a problem with us not knowing whether fred was a person or a horse you think that's an important thing to leave out a whole phrase like that okay So then we can, so what we should be doing is writing a cultural or historical uh, book to help you understand the culture of the day where they used to shoot people for breaking their legs after stepping in a hole, all right? 
So you see the dilemma we have. What I'm really trying to represent to you is the dilemma that is the current predicament in the arena of Bible translations. We have two very distinct camps in Bible translation and preservation. And those two camps are represented here. And by the way, um, it was purposefully excluded from it. Scott was our scribe that had a thing against horses. He didn't think it belonged in there. He was opposed to it from the very beginning, and so he extracted that line purposefully, which really changes the whole story, doesn't it? Now you kind of go, what kind of a community does Fred, does uh, Paul live in and Fred? But it sounded pretty good because we have, we have these corrections, and so you say, well, we got a spelling error correction, we, a couple of them. And uh, we, we may or may not have had some issues with the parenthetical statement, whether it should or shouldn't be in there. Well, we've clarified all of that now. And we're using a very old document. The problem is, where did the very old document come from? It came from a single source. And that single source had a bias. That's the word I'm looking for, had a bias. So what we have going on in the modern era in Christendom is the same problem. And this is with regard not to your Old Testament, with the New Testament. And that is we have two camps. We have the Textus Receptus. Now that sounds real exceptional, doesn't it? It just means the received text, Receptus. But I don't like received because I can't ever remember if I comes before E except after. I don't, so I just don't use those words that have IEs in them. So... Latin is better, textus receptus, which is the received text, which means that's the common one that is uh, very prevalent. But then we also had surface, the Alexandrian text. Um, and this one was set aside. It was in a, it was very, it was the oldest we have access to the New Testament of significant portions of but it was set aside. It was found in a very formal community. Guess where? Egypt. Yeah, Alexandria, Egypt. And it was surfaced really pretty recently in terms of the history of the Bible. Um, and now we have some questions. Which one? This one is the one that has made many, 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 many copies. We have proliferation of this all over the place throughout all of history. But we don't have these wore out. And when they wear out, you copy them, replace them, right? Because they get worn down. And so that's the Texas Receptus, the received text. We just got it from the last one, and we got it from the last one. And they've been in continuous use pretty much. Um, there was, uh, you know, the Roman church didn't really help us in that regard because no one could have a copy of the Bible in their possession for a lot of times without it being against the law. Um, but we pretty much have that being the core of what we call the Bible throughout the centuries. Then come, along comes this find in Egypt, and we found the Alexandrian text, and we have some issues. Now, Guess when they did not have the Alexandrian text? They did not have it in the 1600s. 
1611, when the King James Bible was produced, they did not have the Alexandrian text, was not known, didn't, didn't have any. It was all built on the Texas Receptus when it comes to the New Testament. The Old Testament, remember, was the Masoretic text, and we've dealt with that. But the New Testament was the Texas Receptus. And so the King James was built on that Bible, as well as all the other Bibles in the milieu of the day. And don't think the King James was just plopped out of nowhere. Um, there were literally dozens of Bible translations available um, in Europe, England, and King James simply wanted a standardized one. He wanted a, one that was, that's the Bible. Um, and so that's why he commissioned it to be translated and to, and they certainly took into account a lot of other Bibles. They really built off of one of the early translations as the core, and then they modified a little bit, but they really used one, uh, I believe is the Geneva Bible, they used as the core for it. And so we find that, um, don't quote me on that because I might be wrong on that, but I think it's the Geneva Bible. So they, we have the King James here. No Alexandrian text is built off the Texas Receptus. And so the Bible you have is, uh, that you're accustomed to was translated from that Greek text. Uh, Alexandrian Bible or Alexandrian texts come out. They're very old, but they're also from a portion of the country of Egypt that we know something doctrinally about. And we know that there were some doctrinal errors in that area. And one of the things that has been talked about is why weren't these texts proliferated? That is, why weren't they copied and made lots of and spread around? Why were they set aside very carefully in a library and preserved, certainly, but not ever used? And so all of our modern, most all of our modern translations, your NIV, your NASB, um, and just go right down the line, all of those derived from that, I know there's like a something else, NIV. To tell you the truth, I've just completely lost track of all the Bible translations that are out there. They have become so many that I just don't even bother because they're all in the same camp. So they have said, well, this is the oldest, so we're going to use that as the foundation and so you'll go through the NIV, and you will find sometimes a whole verse, sometimes a phrase completely gone that you're used to seeing in your King James Bible. Why? Because it wasn't in this one that's old, even though it was in this one that we have huge number of copies of, just not very old ones. Here, we have very few copies, but it's really old. But it wasn't ever copied. It wasn't made available to the general public. Um, it was kind of a special translation, if you will, for one group of theologians. And we have a lot of questions about their theology. And so you'll get to a portion like the end chapter of John, and you say, well, what happened to some of these verses that we use about the Trinity and things like that? Why aren't they in the NIV? Well, they're not in the NIV because they're using this as a foundation. And yes, there are several passages that deal with the Trinity and that deal with the, with the deity of Christ that are weak, we'll put it like that, if not absent from these translations because they are derived from the Alexandrian who, were the, who preserved a single text, really, the Alexandrian text of the Bible, uh, to suit their own theology. 
And it wasn't accepted by the norm. Not even the general public of Egypt used it. It was, we have the Texas Receptus in Egyptian circles also being used. So this isn't like this was Egypt and this is the rest of the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. No, even the Texas Receptus penetrates some of this. But this was a found document um, recently. Okay? And uh, so in the modern era, and all these translations give preference to it. And so when you lay up an NIV or NASB against a King James, you will see these differences, and they, whenever you see um, certain designations, let me get my Bible out, and it's not hard to find these or to even uh, see them. They're usually in your notations, they will say NU. The NU has this. In your King James Bible, say NU. Well, if you're in an NIV, they're using the NU. That's an abbreviation uh, that really represents the Alexandrian text. So the NUs that you see there have this. Um, and so I just opened my Bible, and it's two or three places. It says NU, NU, and I'm in the book of Acts. It's not exactly a theological uh, storehouse there. And so let's go to Acts. Since you're in Acts, let's go to Acts chapter 4. And let's pick up in verse 25. Okay. And you'll see in verse 25 in my Bible, there's a little notation, a little one. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said. Verse 25 has a little last, little number and in the center column. Mine says the N-U through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father, your servant David. And they have added in that text to the Texas Receptus. So it's not just portions missing, it's also some words added. And so we have a very different text, really, uh, with some pretty, this is a pretty sizable one. I mean, they're adding the Holy Spirit, they're adding the mouth of your father, um, to that, or no, the mouth of your servant David is what the, what the Texas Receptus said. They said, through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of your father, your servant David. And so you have that comparison. And most of your center column Bibles, they'll have little references and they'll say the NU, if you have a new King James or King James. Um, but if you have the NIV, what they will say is some manuscripts, MSS. <laughs> sometimes they'll have the TR, sometimes they'll have MSS, other manuscripts have this. And they will share the difference. And what they're telling you is that there are two camps. By the way, next Sunday morning, since you're here Sunday now, I'll give you the little in, in thing. A whole verse is wrong. The first verse of the next chapter in Jeremiah I got to preach, I, the first thing I got to start off with was the Masoretic got it wrong. Okay? And so the King James is wrong, the New King James is wrong, and all of these are wrong. Um, so we have an addition, a replacement, uh, missing things. So they're telling you that this is coming from the Alexandrian text versus the Texas Receptus or manuscripts, other manuscripts. And so we have a decision to make as translators. Do we accept what has commonly been accepted for hundreds of years or do we jump down to this very seldom used text called the Alexandrian? Now, if you ever encounter a King James-only person they will harp on this to the end of the age. So, and their argument is sound. It is true that that is the problem. The problem is, do you trust the theologians of that one 
town in that one library uh, and what their theology was when we know that there was some weird theology floating around Egypt during that time period, um, or do we trust what all these other texts give us, the multitude of them? And so um, that's the argument. Now, when I say all the end, New NIV and goes on and on out of the Alexandrian, what the King James only people will not ever notice or mention or even reference, it will never, on any website I've ever read, there is one modern version they always leave out of the argument completely like it doesn't even exist, and guess which one it is? The new King James Version. <laughs> because they did do it off the Texas Receptus, and it does include all those verses, and I think um, my daughter Valerie had this realization that, yes, even pastors are ignorant of that fact. She was at camp, and her pastor, Pastor Petro, was like, you know, all these modern versions don't have this verse, and I don't know what verse they were reading, and Valerie's like, well, mine has it, and he's like, no, it shouldn't have it, because it's a new, it's like, no, it had because nowhere in any King James-only websites, books, nothing do they ever give any credit to the fact that the new King James is the Texas Receptus translated but they don't want to recognize that because they're 1611 King James only. And their whole salvation is built on it. Believe it or not, for, not technically, it's an exaggeration. But their whole system of theology is built and most of their sermons are all constructed around King James only. And, and, uh, but that's not true. You're a new King James. What, why I use the new King James um, is for that reason. We need to realize that language changes but we also need to, I think, stay connected to the Texas Receptus. I don't like what comes out of the Alexandrian text, what's missing, and the ch some of the changes that are made and some of the verbiage that happens there. Um, and so, again, that's the battle. Do we go with the old one, or do we go with the one that we have lots of copies of for centuries, has been attested to by generation after generation after generation of Christianity? Do we go with the one that disappeared and it was never used by anybody? And suddenly reappeared in the last in these last hundred years, or, uh, or less than that actually, and uh, or we go with this. And of course, we know what camp we're in. Now, uh, by the way, uh, you know what the King James only biggest argument. The only time that I ever brought this up and they actually had an argument, their argument against the New King James was, huh? It's not as pretty. Sometimes they'll talk about that. Um, but their big argument is it's copywritten. It's copyrighted. It's not free. It's copyrighted. And no one should own the Bible. Um, how would you feel if we had a George W. Bush Bible? The president just said, all you Christians get together, get all your versions, and let's make one version called the George W. Bush Bible. Do you guys have a problem with that? It is the Bible. The George W. Bush is the Bible. Would you have a problem with that? Everyone has to use the George W. Bush Bible in Christianity. None of the translations are going to be doesn't matter whose name I use. Um, in 1611, the closest thing you could come to copywriting your Bible is put your name on the cover. 
and King Jimmy did just that. Do you realize that for over a generation, over 50 years, no um, conservative Christian churches would use this Bible because his name was on it? And no one should have their name on the Bible. It should just be the Holy Bible, not the King James Bible. And so as far as copyright goes, King James basically did what a copyright does and said, this belongs to me, and still today it's King James only. No one seems to have a problem with having the, a necessarily a Christian king's name on their Bible. In fact, they glory in it. And so we, um, we should, there was issues in that day. This Bible is not accepted by most of the fundamental Christians of this age. It took well over 50 years before it started penetrating some of those churches and about 120 to 200 years before it was in general use. Okay, so resistance has always been there against new translations. That doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. It needs to be done and done well, um, but we need to recognize that the issues they have against this translation are pretty feeble. Okay, but we also want to recognize that can I read this Bible and still get saved out of it? Can I read this Bible and still get uh, some truth from it? Yes. Okay, um, you're not going to hear me, you know, rip that Bible and burn it because it's out of the Alexandrian text, but we need to recognize what it is, and that's my greatest fear, is that there's not enough knowledge base of understanding what it is I'm reading. And when we have a text like the Bible that we give it all this authority we must be well educated in what it is that we are authorizing. Okay, what is it that we are lending authority to? That that um, when we talk about the verbal plenary inspiration of God's word, that it's every word and the inerrancy of God's word. Well, this is different than this, than this, than this. Which one is every word inspired? They're all translations, people. Okay is part of the preservation process, not the inspiration process. And the 1611 was not an inspired text, but it was a translation of a copy 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 of the inspired text that um, we have. And again, it's not the, not the writer, although it is said that the writers were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So there are those that say, no, the text is inspired, not the writer. Um, but the Bible gives credence to both because the writer is carried along by the Holy Spirit as he writes, and what he writes is inspired by God, is the very word of God. All right, but we have translation work, and that takes us into the realm that I can't sit there and say every single word in your Bible is without error because we've already made some, and, now we have, and we have translation decisions that have to be made. That's what we want to start talking about is a translation decision. But I did want to push this off because I didn't want you to forget the story of Fred is dead. So I want to make sure I got that in pretty, pretty early. And this is the argument that's extant today with regard to the modern versions. These are all based, and there's a list of like 80 that are based upon the Alexandrian text. Yes, they're old, but they're narrow. We only have that one little sliver and that's very disconcerting because one person or one group could have manipulated it. Just like the Sadducees would have manipulated things to get rid of the afterlife, these people would have manipulated it, could have manipulated it, and apparently did because it wasn't received by anyone else. 
No one else said this is a great translation or this is a great copy and we should make more copies of it. There weren't any more copies made of it. It was just put on a shelf. Kind of like the copy I took from Scott and put on a shelf. And got found. Okay? So let's talk a little bit about now that we got the right thing we want to translate, let's just start translating. And here we come into the problem, and this is why it's a huge endeavor not to be lightly and not to be just thrown into. When we decide that we're going to make a translation of the Bible, um, we better have some people that know their stuff. Um, let's just take one Greek word. This is your practice, okay? I'm going to take one Greek word. That word is chi. Very simple Greek word. It's only three letters. Chi. It's used very frequently in your Bible. Very frequently. Um, what does it mean? Translate that word for me. The. the. <laughs> you just picked a frequent smaller. Had three letters too. Um, no, it is not the definite article. <laughs> The definite article is just this, actually, <laughs> most of the time. That's the A, okay? And uh, if there's no definite article, then it's A. There is no A. Uh, there is the or nothing. So if it's an indefinite noun, then we don't have anything before it. If it's a definite noun, we have the uh, uh, before it, okay? What? All right, and... But we have a problem. It's not just and. You ready? Here, don't trust me. Trust Brother Strong. Here we go. So you look up Strong's Concordance because you're going to use it. You're going to do it right. He's got the Greek there, chi. And here's what he's got. You ready? Here's the list of what chi can stand for. And also even... So, then, two, not done yet. Oops, sorry, that's T-O-O-2, not T-O. Also, both, but, for, if, I have so, even, also, and, then, to, etc. He has an etc. there. So, okay. Um, kind of interesting. Um, you're going to come across this word all the time as you're translating your Greek into English. Which word are you going to use? Now, there are some rules um, that Strong doesn't talk about, about how it's used, and Greek is a very technical language, and we can start to try to apply some of those rules, but I just want to get you an idea of the breadth of what you're talking about, and this is word after word in here. You have, you can look it up, and it's a very simple Greek word, and you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, you know, and they're kind of similar, but we know that they're different from each other. Uh, slightly, sometimes very different from each other. Um, so, um, between and and but, 
Wow. Even and and even. There is some distinction, right? So this is just a very simple Greek word that we've got to bring into English. And that's not uncommon. And so when our translators struggle with what word, they usually have a multitude of words that they can use in one language to pick up this word in Greek. Um, And because the Greek word is built on context, now we have to build all these rules about how we're going to translate this word in this context. And that's why there are frequent times in your New Testament where you'll have different English words all for the same Greek word. I say, well, why did they just change the Greek word there? Well, they changed it because sometimes, here's the, here's the kicker, sometimes they change it just to give you variety. Yes, that actually is a rule. They try to give you variety. Why? Because somewhere back there historically, even predating the King James, 1611, the translators felt that there needed to be variety within the texts to keep your attention because all good writers use variety, correct? We even teach writers use a variety of words to, to describe some. Don't just keep using the same word over and over and over and over and over and over again. Vary it. See how I went from variety to vary? See that it's and so sometimes they just do it for variety. Sometimes there are rules that are built into the sentence structure that tells us which one to use. But this is the challenge confronting us. Let's go to Matthew. Let's go to the Sermon on the Mount, shall we? Um, Christ is talking about uh, marriage and um, about divorce. And in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 31, um, we have um, this statement. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except Sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. And so there's that word, accept, which is a pretty critical word in the context here. Um, and we have it built off of another word that is more generally, it's actually a different Greek word than the normal Greek word for accept. And that's why I think in the King James, it's saving for. They use the word saving. Saving in the cases of immorality. Um, You can't cause your partner to commit adultery or to be adulterous when they've already committed adultery themselves. And basically, outside of those who have already committed adultery, you are causing them to be adulterous by divorcing them. But what we have made the translation say is that you're allowed to divorce them if they're adulterous. That's two different things. Would you agree? Those are two very different things. Most people would read this and say what Jesus is saying is that you're allowed to divorce your wife if she's adulterous, if you caught her in committing adultery. 
but it could also be interpreted and translated differently so that you should not, I say to you, here's how it would read. It would read, uh, let's just change the word order just a little bit to help us understand it. Uh, But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason outside of sexual immorality, which would cause her to commit adultery, you cause her to commit adultery unless she's already sexually immoral. If she's already sexually immoral, you can't cause her to commit adultery because she's already immoral. So is it permissive or is it explanatory? Yes. Oh, good. Yeah, that'll be good. Good. Read it. Correct. And what they're saying is that if she's sexually immoral, it's a whole different argument. She's already adultery. You can't make her commit adultery by divorcing her. Okay. But doesn't none of those are saying this is what that this is an acceptable reason to commit adultery. But that's how we've taken it and and applied it, that if your wife is unfaithful to you, you have a right to divorce her or him. If your husband is unfaithful to you, you have a right to divorce her based upon that, that that's the exception to God hates divorce and you shouldn't divorce. Um, and again, it could be mean that, but the translators have obviously tried to make it say that, but it could be translated the other way that would simply say, you can't make an adulteress adulteress. Because she's already committed adultery. You add that on, you're not going to make her more adulterous. Okay? So mine in the, in the margin also says instead of sexual immorality, it says fornication. fornication. Which is prior to marriage. Right. Or, and also the general term. Right. So, um, so we have, so these are the, issues that we are confronted. The idea that translators have no theology is false. Every translator has a theology they bring to the text. And that's why um, we need to recognize that we need to know the theological bent of the group that's doing the work. And that's one of the complaints against the King James when it first came out is that they're there to make who happy? Yeah, the king. And that means the Anglican church. And so there is some Anglican doctrine there prevalent in the King James. And, and many people resisted that and they kept to the Geneva Bible largely. Um, and so we, there's lots of Bibles, the Tyndale Bible, there, there's just lots of them during that period of time. Um, and uh, it wasn't a real problem, but this is the issue. Now, let's just, if some of you are just frustrated by all the Greek and all that, let's just bring it into our modern day, okay? Um, let's just, uh, what does that mean? 
Way of the North. Passage of the North. Northern Boulevard. <laughs> the North Passage. Okay. Well, you're giving me, now there's several things. Now, we know something about Spanish syntax, right? That's different than English syntax. And so, um, the del means of the, um, and we recognize that as what? Possessive, the north's passage, um, passage of the north. It's not always possessive, but yeah, okay? And so you have to translate this, and so you could say all those things that you said were passage of the north, northern passage. You can use a lot of those, okay? Now, let's, uh, and when we talk about syntax, let's just deal with this and, and, uh, Here's a little Spanish for you. Oops, sorry, I left out a letter. There. Pluma Blanca, what is that? No, it's not. Translate that. Pen white. Pen white. But every one of you said it's a white pen. Well, if you knew what pluma was, you thought it was a feather. Um, it kind of <laughs> sounds like it. Plume, you know, plume, yeah. Um, this, this is pen, white. But as soon as you see that, it's pen, the white one. Um, but I did make, I, I even agreed the adjective with the noun properly. Um, but we automatically say it's white pen. We automatically do that because we're familiar with this language, and people who are familiar with Greek and Hebrew can do that. I can't. You know what frustrates me with my Greek? Is Greek word order. You know what the Greeks do? And there, here's what we do. We do subject, verb, predicate, right? That's English. Subject, verb, predicate. Subject, verb, predicate. What do the Greeks do? Yep, first word is the important one, emphatic. Emphatic word, less emphatic word, less emphatic word. The first word could be a noun, it could be an adjective, it could be a verb, it could be, a pre it could be any of that, it's just important. You build your sentence structure in terms of whether it's a noun, verb, predicate, built upon it, the endings, and it's very precise, um, and we have that precision a little bit shown to us in, in some of our Romance languages where the English is the sloppiest language on the planet. It's got to be. Next to, no, I take that back because I've been to Haiti. Um, their languages, they, they don't conjugate any verbs, so they're all, not, no conjugation of verbs at all in Haiti. That's very simplistic. But, um, but in Greek, it's whatever the, whatever the writer wants to emphasize first. Whatever's the most important in the sentence, he throws out there. And so, stand. If that's the emphatic word, it comes first. Even if in our structure of our sentence, it might come later on. 
Now, the authors try to do it, but sometimes it just doesn't come off at all in English. Not at all. So we have to change the order from the Greek. There is a translation of the Greek that you can get that is called um, the Greek word order translation. And every word is in, the, and it's just a mess. You're like, <laughs> and it's difficult, but it tells you what's the emphatic part of every sentence. And think of, when you think of that, think of some of Paul's sentences. How long are they? Verses and verses and verses long is one sentence sometimes. Well, they're arranged, and that's why it matters, some of those things. So these are the elements that are involved in translation work. And I would love to say I could just sit up here and we could just take it and very simply do this, but anytime you move from one language to another, you have these kinds of challenges. And those that want a proliferation of translations are claiming that there must be a lot of people capable of doing this and doing it very well, and again, doing it without theological bent, and that's just not the case. Every translator has a theological agenda they bring to the table, and that's why a lot of times we give more credence to committees, and at the front of most translations today, or somewhere in the front, they'll tell you the committee. And they'll try to have this breadth of, of people from different theological perspectives um, contributing to it to try to convince us that there's no theological bent. The problem is, if they're committed to the Alexandrian text, what are they automatically also committed to? The Alexandrian theology. Every one of them has to be because of the text they're derived from. And so that's why preservation isn't just the translation work. It is also copying and preserving, setting those aside, using them, attesting to those things, and saying this is the recognized word of God and and because um, it has to be greater than one sect or one portion of Christianity or one theological group. It just can't be derived from one like that because there's so much variability that we can impose on the text simply by the breadth of words we can use for any one word in another language and the syntax that can be changed. We can change syntax and it changes a lot of meanings. Now there's one other thing on my list today and I want you to just, um, since you're, where are you at? Are you in Matthew? And we've talked about this a little bit in the past, uh, and it seems like this page doesn't have a lot of added text, I'm looking. Because of the syntax issue and because of the, um, especially in Paul's writing, we're going to have to go to Paul's writing, Matthew's is a little different. Um, we struggle. And it shows the struggle in your text. They try to show you. I'm trying to find a text real quick. I didn't identify one offhand. Um, and you'll be reading along, and all of a sudden, there's this word in italics. Maybe one or two words in italics. What's the deal with that? They're helper words that are not in the Greek. 
They're, and they are introduced words. They were words that translators have put in there to try to help you understand what the Greek is saying or the Hebrew. The difficulty is, is that they are out of thin air sometimes. Sometimes they're very reasonable. You say, oh yeah, I can understand. And so what I tell people to do when you're reading your Bible, this is what my practice has been for a very long time, really all the way back into seminary and before, maybe even Cedarville. Um, I read every text without them, out loud, in my study time. So I'll read it without it and see if it makes sense. Sometimes it's just a, the helping verb or the helping uh, a conjunction, something like that. Uh, and it's incredible how many times that if you've read a lot of literature, it sounds okay. And sometimes it's critical, almost changing the meaning to drop those words. And so I want to challenge you that those are not anywhere found in the Greek or Hebrew. That's why they are italicized. Now, this is different than when they quote out of the Old Testament. That italicization just tells you this was quoted from another source. But when you're just reading along, anybody got a text there that they find a bunch of them or some of them? Okay, let's just just right. So you just leave out the italicized and read it, and um, a lot of times they aren't critically necessary, uh, and sometimes they are critically unnecessary. Um, I th- I think there was, I had a lot of respect for one speaker at Tishomingo who did this with the teens. Do you guys remember that? He, he was in the middle of his message. He's like, I don't, this word is terrible. It shouldn't have been here. It changes the whole meaning. He says, it's italicized, so it doesn't mean, and uh, that was, I um, can't remember his name, the young guy out of the, out of the military. Noah. Noah Sundust. Sundust, really? No wonder I couldn't remember his name. Um, Noah Sundust. And here he is talking to a bunch of teenagers in Arizona camp, and he just stops and says, this word wasn't in there. Let's read it without all the italicized words. And he's right. The italicized words led you to a certain idea that wasn't necessarily what the other words necessitated you going there. And he read it without those italicized. I can't remember the text that he was using that night. And I just came up to him and I says, oh, man, praise the Lord, brother, that I don't know how many of these teens caught that, but it was important that he do that, to recognize that you don't build your theology on little italicized words. Now, are they evil, wrong? No, but they are the necessary evil sometimes of translation work to try to help us have more fluidity to the passage. That's really what it's there for, to make it flow better um, and to sound more like what you're used to hearing. Trying to keep it a marketplace language is what they're trying to do. But I just want to challenge you in your Bible study, in your personal reading schedule, um, don't be afraid to, when you come to one of those, just drop it out. 
and just say, I, let's read it without that word that the translators added to God's word. Um, but again, recognize they're not adding it, not necessarily adding it to try to change its meaning, but to try to um, make that transition from the Hebrew or Greek word order and syntax to the English one. So sometimes it's very helpful. And um, sometimes it's not. And sometimes it's almost harmful to understanding the text, I think. It, maybe not harmful, directive to understanding the text. It could be beneficial or harmful depending on which way they're leaning with it. Um, but there are several texts that they do this to um, in certain key areas of doctrine that are very disturbing to many theologians because we recognize that they are directing, pushing you to one, to one place theologically. And so every now and then we'll uh, direct your attention to some of those. Um, <clears throat> well, I'm not going to get into that tonight. I'll wait for that next week. So these are some of the deals we're working with translation-wise. Um, but again, you've got to translate from the right source. And we can debate it till we're blue in the face. But I'm not... I'm not ready to tell you to burn any Bible, even your Catholic one. Okay? There's a substantial amount of truth in all of these. What I want, my church is educated to you. You know what you're reading and what is being read into it that you aren't putting your faith and trust in this translation alone. Our trust is in God alone by faith alone, grace alone, all those alone, and we say sola scriptura, which is the scriptures alone. Um, but we need to recognize when we say that, that there is all of this process involved to get us the scriptures, and things happen in that process, and we need to be ready to acknowledge it. Um, and again, the reason most pastors will not do this study is because to say something like what I just said, they would conclude that will just bring confusion to my people and they won't trust their Bible. Well, I think it's the opposite. I think it brings false confidence in the people where we can introduce error. I, and I've seen it. I th I've seen it in King James-only churches that are introducing error because people don't understand the actual text of what they're reading, and so we're going to tell you what it means, and what they're telling you isn't what it's saying. And so ignorance is a window for error, not a source of, uh, and is not, and is the cause of confusion, I think. Um, education and knowing this stuff, I think, uh, is a place for security and strength and confidence in our Bible, not uh, 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 destroying faith. Um, I just want to share a testimony real quick, and that is... Um, on one of the websites about that Septuagint difference in uh, how long Israel was in the Holy Lands, or in Egypt, sorry, uh, and in Canaan, uh, went through this website, and in the comments section below, 
um, there was a li- one comment made that produced this thread, and this poor gentleman um, was ready to abandon his whole Christianity because he trusted that his preacher told him that the King James 1611 is without error. And his whole faith was built upon that declaration. And once that was undermined, and demonstrably so, he was like, I can't trust any of it. I, and people are trying to talk to him and say, you know, we're not telling you this is evil. We're just saying and recognize that this one translation is not the only Bible and, and, and trying to walk him through it. And just to see the people trying to, even including the author of the blog, trying to get this man to understand just because of this distinction, difference, doesn't mean that the message of the Bible is false. And they, So I would contend that it is ignorance that's going to lead to that kind of confusion and undermining, but not if we are well-versed in how our Bibles got to us, that we can place our confidence there and recognize there's a whole lot involved in getting this to us, and um, the final product to us is of exceptional value. And, it, and, a, and is really uh, so close to what was originally written today that we probably have the highest confidence of any period of time in our Bibles. But we need to have this kind of information, understanding of them to do so. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. And we thank you for your word. And all those that have sometimes risked and even given their lives so that we can have this in our own language. And Lord, uh, some have looked at all the translations and said that this is just causing some of the problems in our churches, but Lord, we know the real problems in us in our heart. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the way you've preserved your word and brought it to us, and we find that the real problem, uh, the core, is really our unwillingness to obey what is plainly taught in all these Bibles. That you are the one true and living God, that you loved us, that you sent your son to die on Calvary's cross to, and rose from the dead and are interceding for us in heaven today and that we need to repent and turn to you. And Lord, that truth is there in all of them. And so Lord, we pray that you might lead us into your truth and find us walking in your ways. Uh, we thank you so much again for the confidence that we can have um, that your truth has been preserved for all these centuries uh, and that we can know you and know what you desire of us because of it. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.